Hey guys, it's Adam of the Dollar Ben. I know it's been a while. We had a snafu with an interview I did with Terrence, and it completely broke my spirit, heart, and soul. <laughs> I plan uh, to do uh, an interview every month to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Dollar Ben. We made a whole little spreadsheet, and I am here at SPX in Bethesda, Maryland. And one of the names on the spreadsheet, which I'm very happy to get me rejuvenated and back into the interviewing spirit, is Jim Rugg. We are going to uh, talk to Jim because we met Jim years ago. Feels like forever ago. Feels like we've always known Jim Rugg. And I say we, and I mean the dollar bin, but I'm saying, you know, it's me, whatever. Sean's here too. She's going to be quietly in the, if you hear a clicking sound, that's Sean taking pictures, which you may see on the internet. Yeah, we're doing, you know, we're doing these, doing these retrospective interviews, and so I've got Jim Rugg, and we're going to cover Jim's career, not from the beginning, even though we'll have him give us a little bit about the beginning of his career, but just from the time that we met him, which was a few years after the beginning of the Dollar Ben. We'll see if we can, between the two of us, figure out what year that was. Maybe he knows better than I do. With that, let me go ahead and introduce Jim. Jim, you want to say hi? Say hi. Hi. <laughs> If you want to give a little bit of your background, kind of the stuff that you work on, what people may see from you and what you uh, what they may know you from. Sure. So the first published comic I did was Street Angel. Uh, that, that followed a couple years of making mini comics at shows like SPX. From Street Angel, I went to D.C. and did graphic novels, young adult graphic novels, The Plain Janes and Janes in Love. From there, my memory gets a little spotty. <laughs> I've done a lot of stuff. I did Aphrodisiac is uh, whenever we met, which mm -hmm. would have been published by Ad House Books, and it was kind of a return to not self-publishing, but indie comics, creator-owned stuff after DC, and done short stories for Marvel. I did graphic novel for Dark Horse called The Guild. I did a work-for-hire image graphic novel called One Model Nation, and series of fill-in issues. I inked American Virgin for Vertigo for a couple of years over Becky Cloonan primarily. Uh, did an Adventure Time story arc. I'm sure I'm forgetting stuff. And, you know, I, I've done a lot of stuff as like a freelance illustrator and designer along the way. And I have had some art shows. You know, that was something that I had done that was part of almost like freelance illustration. It had come out of that. So I've done a little bit of everything. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a few books along the way. But, you know, comics are my yeah. primary love. And, and when I'm doing something else, it's often to uh, subsidize my comics making. <laughs> And right now on the shelves, you have Street Angel comics coming out again. Yeah, so uh, about 10 years after the initial Street Angel series, we collected all of the Street Angel comics up to that point, again through Ad House Books. Putting together that collection meant going through this material <laughs> and, and revisiting the character. And in that process, I really fell in love with that character again. Uh, you know, as I said, it was 10 years of steady comics making in between that first series of Street Angel and where I am, you know, today. And I like to think I'm a much better cartoonist, <laughs> but going through that material, you know, kind of rediscovering that character made me realize how much I like that character and that that character is very flexible to do a variety of stories. You know, she's it's a combination of superhero comics, which I grew up and loved. And then I moved on to alternative comics, things like Fanographics, Love and Rockets, uh, Eight Ball. And so I thought of it initially as like I combined those two things, basically. You know, Street Angel was the superhero fighting ninjas and monsters and mad scientists. But then her alter ego, Jesse Sanchez, was the homeless, hungry and alone teenager, young adult trying to survive on the streets and dealing with things, you know, middle school friends, you know, being poor and insecure and teen angst. So it was kind of really a combination of what you would see in alt comics. 
and what I would see in superhero comics. And since then, I've, what happens is I become a fan of a certain genre of comics, and I read as many of those as I can for a couple years, and then I get bored of that or find something else and move on. So, you know, since that initial superheroes, alternative comics, manga starts to come in in the early 2000s. I love that stuff. Started to look at web comics, went through a phase of like 80s back issues, the black and white self-published stuff that followed the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 70s back issue superhero <laughs> comics, mostly for aphrodisiacs. So I've gone through these phases and I just tend to pour in the stuff that I love. You know, I've gone through European imports that I was very excited by and hopefully all of these things that most excite me turn into Street Angel inspiration and references and create kind of a what they used to call fusion comics a few years ago but a fusion of comics that i like uh you know that, that gives makes the character in the comics unique to me because it's my sensibilities and the stuff that i'm reading and responding to yeah the street angel so it's being published through image yes right and it's it's being printed and it's on the comic book shelves but you're also doing it as a web comic and it's also part of your patreon and so how is all that stuff working together <laughs> I don't know if it is working together. Uh, sometimes it feels a little crazy in my head. But, you know, I want to put this stuff, my goal is always just readers. And so, like, I know that there are readers that prefer a book with a spine on their shelf. There are readers that prefer comic books, uh, web comics, you know, they want to read it on their phone. So I try to accommodate that as much as possible. I don't know how well it always works, but what happens is I end up creating like a spread. Whenever I make my comics, I do two pages at a time. What would be the equivalent of opening a book left and right page? And this is because I think in terms of the book design, you know, I want the page to work together, to look nice, to read clearly. And then whenever I'm done with that, when I have the page that I want, I will reformat that for web comics and for uh, phone comics because it's much different, you know, if you have the width of your phone that's like two inches wide compared to my books are a little bit oversized so when yeah. they're open it's like a <laughs> foot and a half wide compared to again like a two inch phone screen um so i reformat it you know all at once whenever i'm creating that page and now i have like the web comics files and the book files uh and then i post those you know i, I may not post them immediately but if you're following me on patreon i do uh, that's one of the biggest incentives is just to see like what I'm doing now, yeah. uh, you know, as much as possible. Uh, so that's where a lot of the web comics first appear, and then they migrate out to various sites like Tapas <laughs> and uh, Line Webtoon or my site, uh, StreetAngelComic.com. When you first returned to doing Street Angel, and you were doing on Street Angel uh, the the website for it, and you would post on Facebook you'd be like, "Hey, new Street Angel page, new Street Angel page," like whenever, and I that that was like my alert. Like I would see those, and I would go. Let me, I got to read a new Street Angel page. Because otherwise, uh, webcomics, I forget about them all the time. But yeah, I thought you were really up on that. And you were really good at keeping me informed. And then when you did the Patreon, I was like, well, I have to sign up for this because this is my, this is my alert. This is my <laughs> telling me, hey, new Street Angel pages. And I know I'm going to get it because every time you put one up there, it sends me an email that tells me there's a new Street Angel page. And I love it. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out the best ways to use Patreons and things that I can do with it. Cause it is interesting, you know, it's definitely a closer relationship than say followers on Facebook or, yeah. you know, readers on my website. You know, I don't always know who's reading or when, or whether they know something's updated <laughs> and there is so much, you know, like I work a lot and I, it, because I love to do it sometimes because I need to do it. Uh, but the bottom line is it is hard for me to update everything. You know, sometimes I'm doing updates on the road or whatever, so it can be a struggle kind of like keeping up with all of that stuff. And I don't know the best ways to do that. I tell people to follow me where they like to go. I love Instagram currently. 
or at least I probably use Instagram the most, <laughs> you know, it's relatively easy for me to post art and art is what I share most of the time. So yeah. uh, Patreon's kind of a new thing for me and I'm still trying to figure out the best way to do that and to stay in touch with, with those followers and to reward them for being there. I think there's kind of a two-way communication there more than I see in some of these other outlets. So I'm still working that out, but uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah. You know, like keeping no. everybody up to date is, is a challenge uh, for sure. Well, I think I've told you before, like, I really, I like your Patreon of the Patreons. I, I'm backing a lot now. It's, there's a <laughs> lot of people getting on Patreon and that's it. I think it's perfect for me because it allows me, because I was talking to people here at SPX and there's people here that I see them at SPX and I know they have websites and I know they post web comics and I know they do all these things and I see them once a year at SPX and I buy their book from them and I completely even forget that they exist outside of SPX most of the time. So I need that. Like I need that thing telling me, hey, this person's out there putting new stuff out there. So I'm very into the Patreon and of the Patreons that I'm backing, I think there's like, I mentioned like recently, there's like three to five that are just actually i think doing it right and i think you're one of the people that's doing it right you're putting updates you do different types of updates you actually had like two street angel stories going at the same time like because you're doing the superhero for the day and you were doing um one of the ninja fighting ninja stories i like to think all of them are fighting, fighting ninja, ninja stories, stories. yeah well, yeah <laughs> but yeah i do i, I serialize like a, different stories uh you know for the public you know because i do have a backlog of those stories and and if i'm creating a new story you know it may update at a different schedule on patreon than it would you know i'm try i try to update the website mondays and thursdays so that it's always a consistent update but with patreon it fluctuates more you know it's mm-hmm. whenever i finish pages which it's great whenever it's weekly but it isn't always weekly yeah. uh, it, it does kind of ebb and flow but there are other things i put on patreon to supplement that yeah that's gonna say like you'll put up like uh process work or you'll put up like kind of essay kind of stuff and you were working on like stuff that you're working on that you're going to be releasing skateboard designs and things like that you had on there recently you've been doing things like your enamel pens so you had your enamel pens available to patreon backers before they hit the streets before they hit the the floor here at SPX, also at a pretty good price. So um, that kind of stuff's great. Like you're keeping everybody involved and uh, maybe working too hard. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I'd still be happy with it if you if you didn't work so hard. But I do love that you do. <laughs> it's a funny thing, you know. Like I made comics for years for no money. You, you know what I mean? Like it was uh, just this thing I love to do. I used to talk about this a little bit more. It's a strange transition to go from like making comics because you just want to make comics, you know, and trading them and desperately seeking readers. You know, I used to not be able to give my comics away. And whenever that shifts and whenever people start to be interested in it and it and especially whenever it shifts and becomes like my primary income and and you know, where I'm spending most of my time, there's like a real mind shift there to go from like this is the thing I did for fun for years, you know, a hobby to this is the thing I wake up in the morning and do as like my job or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's a strange, it's hard to exactly view that, you know. I have a friend who's an artist, and she doesn't refer to, you know, people say artwork, mm-hmm. and she won't say that. She won't use the word work to describe it. And, you know, language is super powerful. Like, people fight all the time about politically correct language on Twitter and stuff, calling somebody stupid or whatever, you know, calling your kid stupid would be borderline abusive. So, like, these words have power, and it's interesting to me whenever this friend of mine was explaining this to me how she's just mm-hmm. stopped referring to her artwork as work and i find it interesting to think about you know i, I don't know exactly the 
how that how that works in my life. <laughs> but of course, these words do have power. And you know, she's kind of a, she's a poet, so she thinks about words much more than I do, and is probably much smarter than me <laughs> as well. So it is something to think about. In the beginning, uh, you had mentioned that you had done all this work, and then you did aphrodisiac, and you started working with um, Ad House, and that's where I said that I was introduced to your work and familiar, became familiar with you. At the time, when you were on this Ad House tour, I remember thinking, it's like, why don't I know who Jim Rugg is? Like, like all these people seem to know who he is. Like, why am I not in the know on this? You know, where have I missed out? What have I done? Why am I not paying attention? And also, I, it's like, I guess you had been doing some of the DC work and some some work for hire kind of stuff. Were you setting up at SPX still at that time? Probably. I started, SPX was the second show I had ever done in 2000. And it was huge for me. I grew up in a small town. I didn't have a comic book shop for most of my life. You know, so coming to SPX the first time, I remember distinctly going home with two boxes of mini comics (laughs) that I had traded for and bought and, you know, however I could get them. Because I hadn't really seen mini comics and certainly not at that level, you know, like high levels of craft. People were doing silkscreen covers. Uh, there was GoCo printing, if you remember that. You know, it was just stuff that I hadn't seen. And my takeaway, it was very empowering because, like, I went home with this stuff and was like, these comics are as good as any comics I've ever read or seen. And they're made for almost nothing. You know, people are making small runs of them using whatever means they have inkjet printers, laser printers, Kinkos. You know, all of these things that I had access to, more or less, and it's like they were producing great comics. So my takeaway was there's no reason that I can't – I don't have an excuse not to make great comics because Marvel or Fanagraphics isn't publishing me. And that was a huge, big inspiration. So from that point on, I would come to SPX basically every year. Like I've missed a couple. You know, the following year, SPX was canceled because it occurred right after 9-11. There was one year I missed in order to finish – aphrodisiac because the deadline was like the following (laughs) week and i had you know just to get the files in order so like i've missed a couple here and there but it's a pretty regular show for me and a a show that i love i used to kind of measure my years in comics from spx because i would always travel with some other cartoonists and so it would sort of be like you know a lot of shop talk on the way to and from the show it would be a lot of like meeting friends that that was you know once a year i would see these friends at spx see what they're doing, talk to them about their ideas, you know, and go home with like a new plan for what I was going to try to do that year. Like one year, I remember I was going to just try to contribute to anthologies, uh, you know, in an effort to kind of, I don't know what, have somebody else print my work and distribute it. You know, I I can't remember the exact motivation, but, um, you know, that was big early on when graphic novels started to to show up in indie comics. It was kind of very few indie cartoonists were like, sure, I can produce my 200 page story, but if a bunch of us got together and put our work in one book, we might be able to produce that 200-page book by next SPX, you know, and we'll all do short stories or something. So I remember that one year was my focus, you know, and each year was kind of a measure measured that way for the first couple few years that I was doing comics, you know. SPX was a big part of that. Uh, so it's always kind of been a show for me. Yeah, I love making, you know, I still love making mini-comics. Like, a, a thing that I'm really proud of is I won Outstanding Mini-Comic, <laughs> you know, here at SPX a couple of years ago. For your Rambo. For Rambo 3.5. Yeah. You know, and it was after I had made other comics and stuff, but SPX had such an impact, and mini comics specifically had such an impact on me that that award meant a lot because it was like, you know, I continue to make mini comics. Whenever I started doing new Street Angel stories, the first things I would do when I'd finish a story, make some mini comics of it. You know, let me see how these actually look and feel yeah. and, you know, see them on paper. So I, I, I still love mini comics. You know, I, yeah. I made a, uh, I sort of made a mini comic yesterday, <laughs> you know, impromptu. Um, 
because I just love that, you know, the bookmaking. You just made that yesterday? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The risograph book? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) You're just like, I'm going to. That's really good. It's crazy. I didn't realize you were just like. Explain what it is. Yeah, I know. You go ahead and explain. Um, (laughs) So I visited a school uh, to give a, a talk in their art department on Thursday before this SPX. And it was through their printmaking department, and they had a risograph machine. So for anybody that doesn't know what that is, it's kind of a cross between a silkscreen process and a Xerox machine. And the great draw is they have beautiful colors. You can get uh, a lot of different color ink, and it's almost like fluorescent, and it is beautiful. A lot of cartoonists make books, uh, make mini comics, make zines using risographs. And so I've admired how they look and the work that comes out of them for several years. But I've never gotten to actually touch one until yesterday. And so uh, I brought a whole bunch of stuff. And it was just going to be like experiment with the risograph machine. And the thing is amazing. So uh, I ended up making a uh, like a 20, 24 page book, uh, mini color book yesterday. I was there until like midnight last night, which is that's the spirit of SPX for me. I can remember making mini comics before SPXs in the past. So it was kind of fun yesterday doing it again. That's that's incredible. I didn't realize that you had just made that. So one of the uh, you so you said you missed the one right before Aphrodisiac came out because you had to finish. So that's probably why I hadn't seen you. So I think the one before that one was my first ever SPX. So that one it was just overwhelming. Who knows? You know. Then you missed the next year, and that's why I met you at Heroes Are Hard to Find when you were on the Ad House uh, Aphrodisiac tour, and definitely stuck with me. Because, I mean, here we are talking, right? <laughs> what was the deal with that tour? You you said, like, kind of, you did Aphrodisiac. How did that come to be that um, Pitzer ended up picking that up with that house and getting on tour? The first appearance of Aphrodisiac, I always thought this would be some popular trivia when Aphrodisiac became... Street Angel. Very, well, there <laughs> oh, was a no. shipping problem. Oh, I so, do remember. That's, it's actually in my interview that I did with you. We oh, had I love story. Telling, recounting Go for story. it. I'll even <laughs> post... I'll, boring I'll post. Story. I'll post the video that I... Because I did a whole video of your stuff. I'll post that in this post so you can tell it. So uh, <laughs> Aphrodisiac first appeared in Street Angel, the last issue of the Street Angel series. And he was just a supporting character, but we liked... Uh, I have a writing partner, and what happens is we end up generating a lot of times many ideas. You know, we write a lot more, and then we edit down. And so Aphrodisiac was a character that just appeared in the end of Street Angel that we liked and had a lot of, I think, potential for other stories. And then at the same time, Chris Pitzer had asked us to contribute a story for an anthology he was doing called Project Superior. Superior, yes. And it was a chance to sort of work in full color. And Aphrodisiac lent itself to that because it was supposed to be like a 70s superhero comic that Marvel or somebody would publish. So, you know, color was essential. And uh, so we did that short story, you know, the first. uh, So in a way, the first published Aphrodisiac story was done through Ad House Books. So that's how they knew about it. A shipping delay meant that those two books actually arrived in comic book stores on the same exact day. So like in my head, you know, the first appearance of Aphrodisiac is actually these two books, which makes sense because Aphrodisiac is better than your average hero. So, of course, he would need two, two, books, first to, you know, two books to cover him. He's huge. So, I, I, you know, I, that's, I had known Chris Pitzer, Ad House Books publisher, for some years before that. I had friends that he published with, and I would just see him at these shows. You know, again, going back to SPX being a place where I would see everybody, you know, and, and people that I was friends with. I liked what he published. We had gotten to know each other from just doing shows 
uh, you know, the same shows over a couple years. And so as I accumulated, as we made more street, more aphrodisiac stories, at some point I remember talking to Chris about it and he was interested in publishing it. And so, you know, it was relatively simple because he knew the character and, and we yeah. knew each other. So he was seeing what I was doing and thought it was a fit and it was a great fit. You know, he brought a lot to that book. I w- I'm thrilled with how that book turned out. And a big part of it is because I did it with Ad House Books, making that book look the way it looks is essential, I think, to it finding an audience. And a big part of that was Ad House Books. What led to the tour? Because it's not like Chris does a tour for every book that Ad House comes out with. You know, Chris gets ideas of things he wants to try. Like sometimes it's production ideas. And I think he was interested in doing a tour. And I had never done a book tour, so that sounded good to me. It was kind of random. And it wasn't wasn't outrageous. You know, it was probably less than a week in total in in a couple of different comic book shops and stuff. So... He wanted to do it. It sounded good to me, and and that's that's it. You know, it's it's small press. You hop in the car and off you go. And I remember I'd come up for that, and uh, you were there, and you had your portfolios with you, and you had these giant, you had these giant portfolios of art that were just like laying on the back issues, and the video that I'm posting on with this, like you, I actually flipped through your portfolio, and I shot like this whole video with it and everything. Like you just like it was just like mind blowing. I'd never seen some of like some stuff like this before. Like it was just like the aphrodisiac art, and there's just posters and pinups and stuff. And I don't know, and it really just stuck with me. I really loved your art. I really loved like you could tell that you cared about the work that you were doing. I don't I don't know where I'm going with this. What are your influences for things like that? I guess is the question. Your style is everything. In a way, it is everything. I always say like whatever I'm interested in, it because like I want to do books about what I'm interested in, and then the research is what I would be looking at anyway you know it's what what I want to look at so all I need to do is fold that into a project and then it's research you know and and I can excuse that to my wife or possibly write some (laughs) of it off for taxes and so you know aphrodisiac was about old comics and it was about color because I was unhappy with the way digital coloring looked in comics but I liked back issues and I couldn't quite figure out like color was becoming cheaper to produce so I had opportunities to do more work in color and I needed to figure out how to color things and I didn't like a lot of the color that I was seeing in new comics and I was looking at back issues because they just it was what I was interested in you know for whatever reason I had access to a bunch of these old weird superheroes comics and Marvel comics of the 70s are super strange for reasons that maybe I won't get into here but they were publishing a lot it's like the inmates were running the asylum because they could essentially sell as much as they could produce so it was like just show up you know and do this book and hop on trends and they were doing things like son of satan as a superhero which is preposterous because (laughs) those comics really were aimed at kids so you know imagine your eight-year-old's favorite superhero is the son of satan but nevertheless that's a marvel comic you know in the 70s and so I, i got really excited by just the weirdness of those things And that was a big influence. And then, like, once I started doing coloring, I was trying to figure out, like, why do I like the old colors and what's different? And I started to just look as closely at those color processes as possible and study literally how they would make their color palettes and then try to reproduce those using uh, digital methods. And, uh, you know, some of the big art that you describe, some of the aphrodisiac art is like a reference to 50s romance covers, for example. And those Mm -hmm. comics, you know, I would just study production because I'm self-taught as a comic book artist. So 
anytime I could figure out like anything about like, how do you make those lines? What tool do you use? You draw bigger than the book is printed? How much bigger? <laughs> you know, so like I would just go through like any kind of historical interviews, anything I could find to try to understand how to do this stuff. I thought there was some magic technique. <laughs> Turns out it's just hard work and, and maybe talent or vision or something. But I was convinced, you know, if I drew it the right size, if I used the right pen, that I could I could make these this artwork look the way my favorite comics looked. And so the 50s stuff was drawn at twice the size of the printed page, which is really big. Like mostly comics that we see are drawn one and a half times the size. So uh, that's why that artwork was so big, because I wanted to be authentic. You know, I was learning like how these comics were made. And that's if I wanted my book to look like it was made in the 1950s, I was going to try to emulate the way those books were made. So that was the reason the artwork was big, you know. And as far as influences, like I would scan stuff at a super high resolution and just look at it. You know, so I was looking at like, imagine an inch square of your comic, but looking at it on like a 27 inch screen and trying to figure out like, how do these dots work? Like, how can I make these dots? Stuff like that. I would scan all sorts of paper to get samples. I would do what I called um, adding imperfections because like the digital, the machine makes it perfect. And I would say, like, the imperfections are selling the lie, you know. So then I would have to see, like, okay, if I have the perfect dots set up, well, that doesn't look right. Because if you look at the scan dots, they've bled into the paper because the paper was crappy. How do I create bleeding effects? I developed, like, several of these coloring techniques to try to just basically emulate this, how comics (laughs) used to be made. And it's funny because now I've completely, you know, once I was done with Aphrodisiac, it's like, um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Adaptation with Nick Cage. There's a scene where, uh, I forget the actor's name, but he's talking about how he he would get obsessed with something, you know, and then just one day he would get tired of that and move on to the next thing. And he tells the story about how he was obsessed with fish, fish everything. He was scuba diving for fish, had like 27 aquariums set up in his house. And then one day, fuck fish. (laughs) And it's kind of like that. So I finished Aphrodisiac, and it was like, well, I don't want to just color in this, you know, 1970s palette. How do you color comics today? Now I want to make comics that are contemporary comics and look that way, you know, that that look new, that look exciting, that look different, and that take advantage of as much of comics history and what is out there as possible. And not just comics, but, you know, I'm looking at picture books have become a huge influence on the new Street Angel stuff. It kind of depends on the project I'm making in terms of, like, what I'm looking at. But influences are just, like you said, everything. Yeah. You know, it's whatever I think can help me, bring it on. You know, like, show it, let, let me, let me uh, see what I can take from it. You had mentioned kind of not wanting to do colors like that, and you kind of moved on from it. But do you think that all of that research, that zooming in and looking at the pixels and how the do you think that has helped you grow into kind of the cartoonist that you are now? Or it wasn't, like, a waste of time? It absolutely wasn't. You know, like I love color, you know, and I think I learned a lot coloring with that limited palette, trying to figure out like why the palette was the way it was. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think it was very instructive in that way. I think comics, I talk a lot about profiling occupations, and I think that cartoonists tend to go towards obsession. And uh, I was super upset. Like, that was some of my most obsessed. By cartoonist, I mean me. Like, I'm really (laughs) the guy I'm profiling the most. But I was just so obsessed with this stuff, you know, like aphrodisiac in particular was taking that obsession about as far as I could go. Like I did crazy stuff to emulate those coloring things. You know, I would make printouts of color separations. So like a comic book is printed using a cyan, a magenta, a yellow and a black plate. You mix those up and that's what the dots do to sort of create an illusion in your eye that it's all these other colors. But it's really those four colors. So like I would print those things out at a small size and then scan those printouts 
at a very high resolution and reassemble them in order to get that bleeding effect that I mentioned. Super obsessed. <laughs> um, after aphrodisiac, I kind of recognized that, and I and it doesn't lead to necessarily a happy place, and I wanted to get that obsession under control. There's a lot I learned from aphrodisiac. It's, it's a book that I'm super proud of and very happy I did, and there's lots of lessons I take away from it. Not wanting to limit to repeat that coloring scheme doesn't mean that I'm unhappy with it in any way or <laughs> yeah. that I didn't learn almost, you know, so much of what I know and, and things that I move forward with, but I just apply it. Yeah. You know, it's the beginning of color. Color is so complex. Like people color, study color their entire life and, and never master it. And I certainly don't think I've mastered <laughs> it, but it taught me a lot. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't feel like it was, any part of it was a waste. Uh, I enjoyed doing it. I'm proud of what it is. <laughs> and I apply, you know, what I learned from it every mm-hmm. day. You do teaching and stuff. When you do teaching, do you f- kind of fall back on your obsessive deconstruction and things like that? And and like, do you would you teach your students that process, or would you be like, stay the hell away from this? There's better ways to do this, or don't become obsessive and deconstruction and stuff like that, or go with what your your gut is. Do you ever take any techniques like that? Or? I don't teach specific techniques like that. If somebody yeah. came to me and wanted to learn them, I might. But, you know, those are so specifically applied to something. Like, that was to create, like, I want the yeah. person reading this to not be sure what they're seeing. Like, is it a reprint of something from the 70s? You know, so I was going for this authentic look. If a student was interested in doing that, if it made sense to them, I'd be happy to share <laughs> it. It's no secret. I've told, you know, plenty of people this. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be opposed to that. I do caution them about the obsession stuff. You know, like I really yeah. think that it's possible to enjoy this. I, I love making comics. And so like I stress that, you know, like I think like if there's a part of your process you're unhappy with, work on that, like adjust it, do do something different and, you know, try to find that part that you like. Because um, I think a lot of artists start making art when they're a teenager and you're sort of in this angsty time period, you know, for lots of reasons, you're changing hormones, all of this stuff. And then like you associate that negative mood with creativity or making art. And I just don't think those two things are are connected in that way. I think they just happen to overlap maybe in that time in your life. So I try to stress to students, like you can make art any way you want. You can have any process you want. You could draw digitally. You could make stuff that looks like the 70s. You could use watercolor. You know, find the thing that you like, you know, that supports the story that you're trying to tell. But there's also not one way to tell a story. So again, find the thing that you like, the part that you're most excited about, because if you dread sitting down at you know, the drawing table, you're just not going to sit down there. And if you want to make the best work, it's like you want to wake up ahead of your alarm clock because you're so excited to get to the drawing board. You know, that's a thing that I would much rather <laughs> emphasize to students is that idea of like search for this and, you know, search it, ask me questions, ask your, uh, your cohorts questions, go to SPX and ask artists that you like their work you know, these questions and try to find out, like, you know, try to build that process because everybody's, as far as I can tell, almost everybody's process is different. So like you want to tell, you have control over that. You want to tailor it to what produces the results you most desire. Mm -hmm. One of the things uh, when you're kind of talking about all your research and kind of getting all these comics and kind of pulling all this knowledge together that I've noticed so over the last few years, you've also been doing kind of your own zines based off of like, oh, it seems like a lot of this research and then you kind of collect it. Can you talk a little bit about like some of the zines that you've done and the process that you got yeah, going there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I got really into the <laughs> 1980s black and white self-publishing comics that followed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They came out, they flooded the market, you know, the black and white explosion and then the black and white implosion because so many of them were terrible or 
you know, they didn't deliver, they didn't sell, whatever. I don't even know how many comics, <laughs> tens of thousands. There's no catalog of the comics that were produced because people were producing them themselves locally at print shops that they found. There's just no record of a lot of these. And I started to just love them and digging for them in old comic shops. You know, anytime I would travel, I would go and look for them because often they were regional and they never made it into national distribution. And so I was finding these things. And what happens is everybody just kind of mocks them, right? You know, like, oh, all the Turtles ripoffs. And, you know, certainly there are plenty of Turtle ripoffs, but there are also plenty of black and white comics that were unusual, unique, somebody's only comic they ever made. Uh, something like comics I had never seen before, stuff like this. So I ended up getting lots of these over a couple of years and loving them and finding out that the reality of those comics was a little bit different than what I was taught or what I learned. I guess no one <laughs> taught me that, but you know, kind of the reputation that they had. And so I put together a zine collecting some of the best panels and ads and editorial content because I like that stuff and it's hard to find. It's not valuable per se, mm -hmm. but it's just hard to find. It's 25-year-old, 30-year-old comics and so it's a chance for me to put together this collection and share it with people. And the response has been super interesting because I find a lot of other people will have their favorite comics from this era, you know, and they'll come up and they'll see this and they'll be like, have you heard of, you know, Lance Stanton or whatever? And uh, that was great. You know, it was really cool. People would send me stuff, um, you know, and I've, I've made new friends in comics from this where it's like we end up trading comics in the mail or talking about some artists that never you've never heard of at marvel but you know produced a body of work in black and white self-published comics that might be one of my favorite artists you know like uh, an example of that is ken langriff who did new york city outlaws and did a whole bunch of other crazy comics and sort of was a contemporary of like dan Klaus in new york you know and it's very interesting comics but completely outside of whatever comics canon exists and it, it probably shouldn't be part of the canon but it was interesting yeah. comics <laughs> and so you know it's a chance to like for me to find that stuff and then the zines are a chance to share that stuff it's almost like curate a little collection of it. it's almost yeah. an essay or, or you know some kind of reassessment of that stuff um, another zine that I really liked I did one for an art collective called Silhouette and it was a collection of Silhouette panels it started with a preface from Wizard Magazine from my childhood <laughs> they would have a column of how to draw comics bart sears would would write about it you know i think he was a cubert school graduate so he would write different ideas on how to make comics and focus on one particular subject each column and one column i remember stuck with me it was about silhouettes so it would be like silhouetted figures and how they could be used and they're dramatic and so i started noticing silhouette panels and i thought that would be a great subject for a zine because everybody uses them except one of the few guys that barely uses them is jack kirby but almost everybody else uses them from newspaper comic artists to to underground alternative guys to, of course, mainstream superhero stuff. And so putting those all together in one zine along with that article was a chance to like highlight this one technique that's very popular in comics but may not be uh, spoken about that much. And it's something I think is beautiful and interesting and very comics unique. And I cataloged all of the panels that were used in an effort, again, to sort of think of it as like uh, comics criticism, you know, but it's an essay about this one particular technique and it's in the format of what we're talking about. Um, another one was an ad zine, which was a collection yeah. of ads. This was inspired by um, a lot of comics being reprinted in book format and then all the ads and ephemera being lost. And I like that stuff. It's period related. You know, I, I like to think of like, what's the world like whenever <laughs> Wolverine's first appearance, right. you know, like, like what's yeah. being advertised. And a lot of those ads were produced in-house by the companies. So like a Marvel ad, they would have like a staff artist just whip out, you know, draw the hostess thing of, of Spider-Man eating the cupcake. 
I started going through and finding these ads, and the other part that inspired that was seeing a guy that made mini comics on newsprint that he printed on an inkjet printer that looked phenomenal. And so I found out that he was using just a cheap <laughs> inkjet printer, and it was like, well, I have a cheap inkjet <laughs> printer. What can I do with this? And, you know, it was a combination of those two things. It was something I was interested in and a chance to try this technology and production method. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they are explorations. It's something I'm excited enough about to spend whatever time trying to, you know, share it with someone else, essentially. I think the first one I got was the ads one. And I remember taking that home from SPX and sitting down at my dad's kitchen table. Being confused. And just like flipping through <laughs> it and just like with my dad. My dad was like, hey, what would you guys get at SPX? And I'm like, well, one of the, I got this ad zine and... I don't really know what's <laughs> going on, but this guy, Jim Rugg, you know, he's, he put it together. And so it's gotta be good. Let's, <laughs> let's go through it. It like flipped through it. And I was just like, just marveled at like all the, like the stuff that, that was there and just the humor behind some of it. And like you, if some of it feels, it feels like a spoof sometimes when you're flipping through some of the pages of like, is this, did he doctor this? Is this real? And it, it was, you know, it's, who I knew? love advert. I think advertising is <laughs> a really interesting thing to look at. And as time passes, then the ads are sort of the outliers of what the culture of that era were. were. <laughs> so, you know, that zine has ads from the 1930s all the way up into the 2000s. I used four different paper stocks so that it would emulate the type of paper that it appeared on. One of the papers was a was newsprint that's used and sold by U-Haul as packing paper. <laughs> but I found somebody, a bookmaker friend of mine, we were looking at papers and they're like, U-Haul has this, it's very soft. It was perfect, you know, for, for some of the ads. But they also feature all these great artists. You know, there's Todd McFarlane ad in there. There's Jack Kirby ad. There's Jack Davis, Charles Burns doing uh, some kind of mint ads. You know, so that's the other piece that just gets lost. You know, like it's these cartoonists that I like a, a lot. And it's like, most people will never see this stuff, you know, because why would they? That, those ads aren't being reprinted anywhere, but they're significant comic book artists, you know, and it's part of their body of work. And for the most part, it is just gone. <laughs> yeah, because nobody ever like, thought right. to keep it. That's not the stuff that's like pages for sale. You no, know? no. That's like stuff that was probably And it's like, never reprinted, you yeah. know, except by me in, yeah. in an edition of 40 copies. Somebody contacted me. They found it at uh, the Coke warehouse. Coach? Koch? I don't know how you pronounce his name in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. But it's a big yeah. comics warehouse. And somebody found one there for like a dollar or two. So and cracked a me dollar? down. Man, it's a I good paid, deal, man. I paid way more I would have paid a dollar too. I paid way one. more than a dollar for that. That was an SPX debut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so I remember. I remember getting that because you were like, "Well, I got this weird thing. If you're interested, <laughs> I'm trying mean, to talk everyone out of buying any of this I stuff. I don't know if this is something you guys really want, but I I made it. So <laughs> if anybody wants to buy it, I guess they can. And I was like, "Yes, yes, I do want this." Do you? So you were talking about the paper, and I'm sure as an artist, and there's all these things that they go. But so you you did the paper to try to align with the eras. I mean, like, do you do that for yourself or do you hope that somebody's going to notice or do you hope when you tell somebody that they're like, that's awesome? Because I didn't notice that. Yeah. Sean may have. She's smarter than I am. She's more <laughs> observant than me. You know, um, <laughs> but now that I know, I'm going to go home and flip through it. I can get more esoteric with that book. Like, again, <laughs> talking about obsession before I laid out like how it was going to be paced. I went through, we had gathered up, I, I did this with my friend Jason Lex, uh, another cartoonist. We started out with about a thousand ads that we assembled and then we would get together and look at some, you know, because what would happen is you'd have a bunch of shoe ads and be like, well, let's do one shoe ad. 
you know, or, or whatever the case may be, some were series. And then I went through a bunch of comics and I would cattle, I would, we had two kinds of ads. One were comic strips and one were like one big image, you know, like a full page ad. And so then I went through a bunch of comics and I would mark like, okay, typically page four is an ad. And so the ads were the full page images and the rest of the pages were ads that had comics on them. So it was the same rhythm as a comic book. Nobody, I'm sure nobody notices that. Who do I do that for? I have no idea. It's these voices in my head. They just demand it. But, you know, the way that ends up affecting things is like cut to a year or two later and I do Super Mag, which is a magazine that's kind of the same concept where I'm putting a bunch of my artwork, comics, short stories together in a magazine format. And the whole idea is to like, organize this work that isn't necessarily related by theme into a format related organization so like the first couple of pages are like ads they're illustrations essentially of mine and then you get into very short like one page pieces that in a magazine are like the columns that are typically uh, you know in the front of magazines and then you get into the longer stories that are like features in a magazine so you know in the case of super mag that arrangement was me sort of referencing magazines that were super influential to me in the 90s when I was studying graphic design and obsessed with magazines and so it's a, it's a chance to just think of like how does this work relate you know because I do a lot of different work and trying to figure out like how does it make sense in a way it's an artist exploring like what they do some of my work is very commercial. When I'm drawing Wolverine, it's, you know, it's not necessarily me <laughs> unlocking some, some part of myself. But some of the other stuff I don't always know. Like, why am I doing these incomplete stories? You know, and then they find their way into Super Mag in this weird format. So <laughs> I don't know exactly why I do it, but it's just stuff that interests me. Yeah. You know, I, I, whenever I was a little kid, I would go, my parents would go to the grocery store, and I would go to the magazine rack and, like, read wrestling magazines. You know, it's a very fond memory for me. So, like, <laughs> magazines predate, you know, studying graphic design or whatever. Maybe that has an influence, you know. Who knows? It's, uh, I look at as much stuff as I can, you know. Right. I, think, I think all of us do, and then it filters through some of my work, and sometimes it's very obvious where it's coming from or what the influence is, and sometimes, you know, you sort of just follow a whim, and it's something a little more subconscious. I would say that whenever I get a chance to hang out and talk to you at SPX or Heroes Con or wherever we happen to be, that talking to you always makes me feel super dumb, oh, no. but not in a bad way, like in a really good way, because I love having conversations with you because I always know I'm going to learn something. And I think that's one of the reasons I enjoy talking to you so much. I don't know. Like, I've, I'm like, gosh, like you feel like a, like, like a well of knowledge and because of all this research and hard work that you're talking about, it's not like you were like born with all this. Like basically you do all this work. And then I know if I have a half hour conversation with you, I'm going to learn a ton of stuff without having to do all the work that you did to get there. It's great. I love it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad someone benefits. <laughs> I think a lot of people would interpret that as like, this is the most boring podcast I've ever no. heard. What is oh he talking God. about? So. You know, I uh, no. It, honestly, I do this for me. This is why I do the podcast. I'm not actually recording. Like we <laughs> talked, we had a conversation about this. I do that all the time. I hope that people that listen to the podcast will enjoy the same things that I enjoy. So like when I interview you, I, I'm pretty sure there's, there's some people that are going to be listening and be like over my head. See you later. I'm out. But that's not my that that's not my goal. My goal is for people that maybe were like, I had no idea. Like I had no idea that people put this kind of work into stuff. Like I think that your work should be celebrated. I think like <laughs> all this effort that you put into these comics, like these subtleties that fifty to eighty percent of people won't notice, but like you put it there because you have this love 
for the the medium you have this love for comics and art and i think it's good for people to know that there's someone like what you put into it because someone can look at your stuff and go that's beautiful like your stuff is beautiful your stuff is awesome but i think like for someone to go wow like he really put a lot into this and I notice things when sometimes when someone points out, I'll see something, I'll go, eh, that's okay. And then like, yeah, but had you noticed how it does this? And I'll be like, wow, that's mind blowing. You know, like I didn't even like, there's things in art that you don't notice until someone points it out to you. And then it's just like some of the most amazing things because just the layman, not even the layman, because people who aren't layman won't notice things sometimes. And um, that's why I love having conversations like this, because you get to point out some of the stuff like that. And then people can be like, I really like this stuff. But now, now, man, I'm mind blown. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you appreciate it. <laughs> I'm glad you respond that way. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm conscious of an audience. I do think about audience a lot. Uh, yeah. I want my stories, you know, the flip side are I, I want my stories to appeal to a lot of people. One of my, again, going back to being self-taught, I think that's what initiates a lot of this, why I'm interested, why I look at stuff this way. I remember writing to Marvel for their submission policy, and what they would stress is for pencilers, you should be able to tell a story with your pictures. You should be able to read the comic without reading the words. You should understand just by looking at the panels what's going on. And so that made me interested in things like wordless comics, and, you know, uh, a lot of whenever I started reading, it was like right after Jim Shooter had left Marvel as editor in chief. And his big thing was every comic is somebody's first comic. So it needs to appeal to that that reader, that new reader. You know, that's what he was chasing there. And so I always think like, especially with Street Angel, like I want my comics. I hope they work on this level, you know, because that challenges me and that excites me. But I want them to appeal to the first-time reader. Like, that's a point of pride for me is, like, you haven't read a comic since you were a kid or maybe you never read a comic. You will, you will be able to read Street Angel. You'll be able to understand it. You'll be able to follow it. You'll, it'll make sense. I loved David Lapham's Stray Bullets. Whenever it, it first came out, that was a really important comic to me. And I can remember reading. It follows an eight-panel grid. So it's almost like storyboards. It's the simplest Anybody can understand, like, which panel do you read next here? And every page was predictive in that way. So very quickly you acclimated to the language of comics in his comics. And that stuck with me. You know, like, he did that so that this comic that was a crime genre comic might appeal to people that don't typically read comics. But they would be able to follow it anyway. It wouldn't be like, oh, which panel do I read next? You know, I'm confused by this odd page layout. Like, he tried to make it friendly to new readers, and I tried to do that. You know, I want Street Angel to appeal to somebody who hasn't read very many comics. These comics that, whenever I became aware of, like, try to tell the story without the words. There are what are known as silent, com wordless comics, and I love them. You know, it's really interesting to me to think, like, well, how do you solve this problem if you don't have words? And so it's something that, like, I try very, very hard to make my comics read clearly, dynamically, and easily for somebody who maybe has never read a comic before. But for the person who's a longtime comics reader like me, hopefully, you know, I'm adding some of these layers that reward that as well and that appeal to that person as well or reward them on subsequent readings. So we can talk about some of the more <laughs> esoteric stuff that, that I do, and it's fun and I love that stuff. But that's not it. Like, that's not the only part of it. You know, like, yeah. I'm also conscious of this idea of, like, does this sequence read clearly, you know? And that's challenging. It's hard to be objective on your own. So, you know, like, I'm constantly, like, showing it to my poor wife or, you know, again, my writing partner. And, and this is something that we'll sit around and think about. Like, 
maybe this doesn't read that way, you know, to, to make it as clear as possible for, again, new readers, you know, like mm -hmm. first year I came to SPX, I can remember being shocked by what I call like regular people were here as opposed to like <laughs> comic book conventions that I had gone to that were, you know, a bunch of overweight middle-aged men or something. <laughs> so one person coming through was an older lady and I asked her, you know, what, what was she doing there or what did she do? And she was a school librarian that was interested in comics because that was something that she thought would appeal to uh, students, you know, or kids that didn't like to read or whatever. And it, it always kind of stood out to me as like, these are, I want, I want to have the book for them. You know, like I want to be able to, to show this person, my book, this person who's like new to comics, kind of interested and they can just look at my book and make sense of it and kind of go into it. So I can imagine doing comics that aren't made for that audience, but most of the comics that I'm making now are made for that audience. You know, I wanted to appeal to a wide range of readers. I mean, I think it does. Like, it's funny, like, listening, like, we're always, Sean and I are always trying to find comics for our cousins to read. Um, just because, you know, they're into art and, like, one of my cousins draws and they're, like, uh, 12, 13 around there. And um, I, I do remember giving them, we gave them some comic and they really enjoyed it. And uh, I think it was, like, um, Pet Avengers or something we gave them. <laughs> And this was years ago, even this was even this was probably even a few years ago. And they really enjoyed it. And because they were in the animals or in the art, you know, that's cool. And then I gave them another comic and they were just like, I couldn't read it. They couldn't follow it. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, OK, Pet Avengers is panel, 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 panel. And this other comic I gave them kind of flowed different. And unless you understand the, the flow of a comic book, you can't read it. Like you realize, oh, if I'm reading, you can follow the words sometimes and you know the direction. But if it's not panel, 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 and you're not used to that, you can't read comics. And as you were like talking, I was like, I bet you Ella would love Street Angel. <laughs> I think she would. And she'd be able to read it, too. I think she would. You know, it's she's she's the, that misfit character and kids feel like misfit characters sometimes. And sometimes adults do. Too. Sometimes <laughs> adults do, too. And I think that she would actually I think she would actually enjoy. It. I never thought about, oh, man, man I got kids street angel for Ella. But now I'm like, man, I bet you she would love she would love a street angel comic. It's a good uh, it's a good female lead character. And like you said, it, and she every, doesn't drink that much. <laughs> no, it's OK. <laughs> but it's like but you can you can pick up any like you said you do minis you can pick up any street angel mini and enjoy the story i mean every single one starts out with you know her origin who she is like every front page tells you exactly who jesse is and then you read the story and um i think you could pick up any of them they're completely self-contained they can be read in any order i would always get frustrated when i'd hear about some great comic and then i'd try to track it down and it'd be like issue three of some multi <laughs> you know many part story and it's just like you know that's not what nobody wants that so yeah. i know that's a, a struggle with indie comics and so like all if it says street angel it's a good starting point yeah like even like uh those the oversized uh collection or not even collections they're just issues really oversized issues that you're doing now you can pick up any of those and just read it yeah absolutely and they've all been they've been fun you like some of those like you said were web comics and i've i've still i'll read it in web comic and then it'll get printed and i'll be like i have to have this in in paper like you know they I, are different. i can read in the web comic but i i have to have that yeah that big tangible book to read in bed with a giant book and like decorate nice. your shelf with it. yeah <laughs> yeah no um yeah there there's a there it's it's good I, i've been enjoying the streamers i'm really glad you're back to doing that and everything i would be remiss if i did not talk about your ballpoint pens sketches you had mentioned them a little bit earlier we didn't really kind of go into it uh 
But so you did uh, a couple years ago, you started drawing really awesome art with ballpoint pens. And how did that come to be? Man, you know, like everything, it's it's kind of super random. I did a drawing. I don't know exactly why I thought ballpoint pen would be the thing to do, but I did a ballpoint pen comics related drawing on a notebook paper. And then I put it into an auction at Heroes Con. Was that the first one? That was the first one, and the response was fantastic. That was the Shonen yeah, uh, Shonen Warriors. Warriors. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, it was it was a really good response, and uh, and that was cool because it was super fun to draw. You know, like I had spent so much time in my life drawing with that stuff, <laughs> like basically, you know, kindergarten through grade twelve or whenever I switched from pencil to pen, you know, at some point. But you know, just doodling in notebooks. And so uh, I did that drawing, and it was super fun to make just as, like, the tools and the paper and everything was fun. And then I was uh, in an art show in L.A. that was a group show with video games, and I did one about Contra. And uh, it sold out. It sold before the show opened. And so, like, the gallery – I had done a couple of pieces for them for different shows. The gallery offered me a solo show. And so I just started doing ballpoint pen drawings. And I would try to do – I would try to have, like, one day a week where I would just draw – draw whatever you know and I'd kind of mentally have lists of things and it'd be whatever I was most excited to draw that day when I had the time blocked out and it was fun it was like it was drawing in a way that was much different you know most of the drawings that I would do up to that point were in service of something either freelance job so you know it was drawing something somebody was paying me to draw or it was for a script that even if I had written it it was still sort of like (laughs) okay today I have to draw this crowd scene this car chase whatever is in the script this was different because it was just like when I was a kid and it would be like, what do you feel like drawing? That's what I was doing. And it was amazing. Like it felt really good. And so uh, I was drawing that. And once the show came up, it was like, all right, I'm going to put a little more time into it. And so I had um, the first show in LA, 2012, maybe some, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was great. It was like 800 people came to the opening. We sold everything. And it was just like, oh, okay, this is awesome, you know, <laughs> super excited. And so uh, we released like a catalog collection to go with the show, which looked like a notebook and collected all the drawings. And that was really well received. And then uh, we had a second show, same kind of deal. Uh, another collection of, you know, was published like a catalog that looked like a notebook. And it was super fun, but I missed doing the comics. And uh, I, I may have told this story before, but... I got to the end of a year and I was just kind of taking stock of what I had done and I realized I'd only drawn two pages of comics. <laughs> you know, I was drawing things, but it wasn't comics and I and I kind of had to reassess a little bit. For one, I couldn't really call myself a cartoonist if I wasn't <laughs> making comics. But also I loved comics, you know, like they're my first love. So it was really fun to do these pen drawings and I think they made me better as an artist. You know, like I started to approach comics making differently. If you look at like the Street Angel stuff that I'm doing now, mm-hmm. it looks a lot different than the original Street Angel stuff. And not just because I'm a better cartoonist, but my approach to drawing changed. Like it was like, I really enjoyed these ballpoint pen drawings. What did I like about those? <laughs> How do I bring that into comics? You know, and the big thing for me was switching to uh, drawing with pencils, mm-hmm. uh, which was another thing like, you know, that was the primary tool I used growing up. And it's sort of like almost a memory, a muscle memory or recall of like Malcolm Gladwell talks about doing 10,000 hours of something. Like I've had a pencil in my hand for probably 150,000 <laughs> hours, like, like literally. So kind of finding that revelation in the ballpoint drawing, almost finding like rediscovering how fun drawing was, uh, was something that then I, I bring back to the comics and the comics making, uh, hopefully. You know, from my point of view, it certainly 
is kind of this thing of like I was so excited to get back to making comics after maybe a year or so of not making very many comics and I hope that enthusiasm comes through you know on the page and in the characters dynamics and stuff like that Mm -hmm. I'm a believer that 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 enthusiasm is something that I will get comics you know that I'm a fan of or something and you can almost feel the enthusiasm of the artist and I love that that's like one of the qualities that I really admire and so I hope I'm able to you know translate that uh, through my work absolutely the like a million things off that. Um, I remember that Shonen Warriors page, the um, at the Harris County Artist, the model because they have like uh, cosplay models was like holding it with like her fingers. Like, what is this thing that I'm <laughs> carrying around? And as the price kept going up and up and up, you could just see her face <laughs> just going like, "What is going on?" <laughs> like this. It's- it's like this ballpoint pen. It was so funny to watch her not get it at all, and just like, like the just the reaction that they got from the crowd, and and I didn't I didn't even realize that that was your first one. I was like, that's I figured that you had probably already done a few at that point, but it was uh, came that across reaction. Really well. You know, it's like that reaction, the reaction from the group show. Th- those were the reasons that I kept doing that stuff. Like they yeah. were fun, but if nobody else enjoyed them. <laughs> You know, maybe I would still do a couple, but uh, that kind of reaction was a huge part of it. You know, like people responded to it. Mm-hmm. And, and it goes back to that idea of like, I want my comics to connect with somebody. If they're a first time reader or a long time reader, I want them to connect with that person yeah. because I've seen those connections. You know, the ballpoint pen stuff, I believe, connects to people because everybody has drawn with a ballpoint pen, even yeah. if it's just during a phone call, absentmindedly, you know, doodling. Uh, everybody reacted to the notebook paper. Uh, possibly because they're scarred from, you know, years of of public school or whatever. (laughs) But it's a thing that, like, people had a very visceral reaction, I think, to the materials themselves. And so, like, I, I, in a way, I I want, you know, like, now that I've seen it, I've been spoiled. Like, that's the reaction I want. I want that love. I want that deep, like, connection between the reader and the art and the stories. I think that the tool and the notebook and stuff like that was a connection. But, like, to be real, it's like... I mean, we're talking about ballpoint pen drawings, but we're not talking about ballpoint pen drawings. These aren't like you say that everybody draws with a ballpoint pen on paper. <laughs> like nobody, everybody doesn't draw like you do. On like the, you're, we're talking like super detailed strokes with the ballpoint pen and colors blended beautifully. I mean, this isn't like a stick figure or a dog pooping or something. I mean, like <laughs> you did works of art with the ballpoint pen, and I think that. That is a big thing that connected with people. Sure, the the tools did, but the fact that you were able to do what you did with those simple tools is what I think really connected with people. It almost was like this fantastical version of ballpoint pen art. And I think like being able to see that and look at that and just be like, I there's no way this guy did this with a ballpoint pen. Like, how did you even figure out that you could do that kind of detail? You you did a, like a Bible page. Like you hand lettered, not even like hand lettered, but you like hand lettered the type of a like a Bible page and like Helvetica like fonts and stuff. Yeah, and the text on the other <laughs> side, as Sean just yeah, like not just like you hand lettered the page, but you hand lettered like shadowed the text from the other side and like the the book. Like, what even made you think that you could do that? You know, I I don't know. And, you know, it's baby steps. It wasn't the first drawing that I did, you know, in that series. 
Uh, you did a Photoshop like color, like whatever that thing palette thing. That's probably picker. like my only viral <laughs> thing I've ever done. Um, yeah, that that one was that was a good one. Uh, you know, it's just I I was again like I would wake up and I would just sort of like think about whatever was on my mind or you know. Um, in terms of like what I could do with it, a lot of that, and it's the same with aphrodisiac whenever I was coloring that stuff, is almost through trial and error or experience, it would be like, okay, this works. <laughs> you could do it this way, or you could combine it with this thing from this other drawing, you know? So a lot of it is just experiential where it's mm-hmm. like, all right, what can I do? You know, it'd be almost a happy accident would occur, and it'd be like, oh, these colors blend well, or you, you know, it works really well if I'm using a straight edge for it or a template or. Uh, you know this type of pen or something and then it's like you start thinking i know i can do this now or i know this pen can do this or i this fine tip pen actually works perfect for patterns where you know where do i apply it so it's almost like you learn what the tool can do and then in your head you're aware like okay this is in the this is in the tool shed where can i focus this what can i point this at and you know it's so like the, like those are some of the influential uh forces whenever I'm thinking about what do I want to draw. That's what I'm thinking of. Like, okay, I've got this tool or I have this thing I want to try. Like, I do the three-dimensional drawings. That's a thing a lot of people like. <laughs> with the ballpoint pen. With the ballpoint pen. <laughs> and so, you know, like, that didn't start with the first drawing. That was like having hundreds of different pens that I would accumulate <laughs> and then realizing the big pens, like the four-color, you know, switchy, yeah. uh, like a kid's toy. <laughs> it was like I realized a couple of those colors look like the colors in uh, 3D printing so maybe i could do something with those that would be like 3d like a 3d print and then i just started looking very closely like again like scanning the old the old aphrodisiac the old comics to see like how these colors and dots work it was like okay get out all the 3d stuff that i have start examining how this works and it's just deconstructing that you know and once i figured out it's like okay try it and some of it worked and some of it didn't and then it's looking at which parts work you know and realizing like diagonal patterns work really well so make sure you have those you know where you want an where you want an element to pop out and it's you know it's like i love drawing so it would just be like all right try this and you know and build on it so i guess like it's the same like you mentioned the deconstructing and looking at the pixels i mean when you're drawing that photoshop color picker thing i mean you're basically starting with the vibrant and you're moving in across and it's kind of the same thing you're zooming in you know how that looks so you know when you're crossing colors and doing the stripes that you know exactly how many to do and it all stems back from like your deconstructive uh yeah and you know for for the ballpoint pen drawings it's a little bit of improv you know you're you're drawing and the colors blending or it's not or you see something working and then it's like i can apply that to the rest of like in the photoshop example the rest of the interface you know with this technique to just shade a little bit to get like a light gray so you know you're kind of looking at what's going down you know you're you have an idea of what you're going to do and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't and you have to kind of adjust it or you know on the fly and often the stuff doesn't end up the way i imagine it but sometimes it ends up better you know like like being different doesn't necessarily mean it's worse or better you know sometimes it's just different but sometimes it's better you know <laughs> and uh that's the challenge is like you know, you have to, you rescue that drawing sometimes, you know, if it starts to not work the way you thought it was, maybe you step back and reassess it and say, 
what's happening like it's different but what is this thing now and maybe you know you zig instead of zag <laughs> and see what you can do with it and a lot of i mean a lot of what i do comes out of those moments you know the stuff that doesn't go according to plan is usually the stuff that then it's like oh i now have a new trick you know and and just just make a note of it you know mentally uh this is something i can do somewhere else you're definitely an artist a cartoonist who is always learning and evolving and revolving and <laughs> just i growing but i mean like again like you're 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 growing but you're also like oh, i'm gonna try this style for a little while i'm gonna try this style. so you're not like it's not like you're like always just moving on but you're always expanding your your tools and um it's definitely noticeable in your work and it's definitely something that i appreciate in your work and i think a lot of people do and i think a lot of that goes and shows like where you said like you really like seeing the care in people's work and i think that that shows the care in your work uh like your latest street angel or not actually not the latest one the one before the one you had at heroes because you have one come out since heroes right yes you've got the whole graffiti thing on the inside cover and that's like basically like ballpoint pen ish looking you know like it's a lot of it's scribble and just kind of graffiti and i think it all comes back together i think you you grow and you reach out in all these different tools and then you use them all like you said like doing the ballpoint pens helped you kind of go back to street angel and and bring what you learned and what you loved about it into the book yeah and i think all of it shows i think it shows that you love being a cartoonist it shows that you love drawing and i think you can feel that in your work it's funny, I carry around these ideas, you know, like there are things I want to try, but it's a matter of like, you know, waiting until the right story presents itself. <laughs> like, when can I use this? Um, you know, I had done, I, I've been doing a little bit more graffiti in the comics themselves, and that's something I've wanted to do forever, where it's like you make the comics page that looks tight and like a regular printed page, but then you add the little kid lettering on top. Because, I mean, I've seen lots of old comics that are drawn on and traced and oh, pages yeah. cut out and <laughs> scribbles and crayons. So, you know, like, how how do you use that for a narrative purpose, you know? And I think that there are all these, like, a never-ending supply of these tricks. But finding the right place to use them, uh, you know, that can be... Sometimes it takes a while before you get the right opportunity or the the right fit, you know, the right story. I mean, ultimately, it starts with the story, especially if it's a comic. Uh, some of the zines, you know, you can, you can kind of fool around starting with an image um, or a technique or a process. But with the comics... For me, at least, it starts with a story. You know, the graffiti in that Street Angel book is something I, I've been conscious of for years, but didn't maybe have the right story for it until it's like, oh, suddenly set in a beat-down <laughs> school, that's the perfect place to just cover a textbook in graffiti. I, just, I, I could do those. Like, you did trading cards in the, the latest one. Like, you can't... Oh, man. Anyway, I, I don't, I don't want to keep going forever. Right? I spent I could keep going more time more on more. the uh, the end pages of, yeah. that set of the Street Angel Gang yeah. than any other page, including the cover of that book. But you get those ideas, and you just want to see them, you know? It's like so. a whole collection of trading cards on the end pages for all the characters. And it's funny, because like, when you first see it, you're like, oh, this is cute. Dude, it's trading cards and then you read the story and you're like wait a minute and you go back and you're like these are the trading cards for the characters in the story kind of you know and, and throughout it and uh i was like it had like the the backs it was the front and then the, at the end it's like all the information about them and oh gosh man i, I love i love you jim i love you jim <laughs> i love your work that you put into things and i love the thought that you put into things and it makes me smile when i when i get to see when i get to the end of a book and i see like how 
it all tied together and, and well that's the best package man. you know like that's the stuff that got me through life <laughs> is, is you know these books and movies and and whatever that provided that smile for me so it's awesome yeah. to hear you know like that's what i want i want people to read this stuff and feel good enjoy it yeah um i miss anything sean very light on the wrestling talk i know i actually kind of did that on purpose i had to work really hard on that one <laughs> uh, i don't know i'm over here playing snapchat okay well sean's snapchatting what so you just had a new uh, an issue didn't come out that long ago it was a few weeks ago an issue of street angel came out uh late july i think was it that long ago? Yeah, and wow. I have one more coming out this year in late October, so around Halloween, because Halloween, yeah. you know, Street Angels holiday. Yeah, awesome. And then, you, but you're still doing the Patreon, and you're still doing web comics. So if you want to just read Jim stuff, you can just check out his uh, his uh, web comics. If you want to read and support, because you should, because you should, you can appreciate it. Then you can go to his Patreon and back his Patreon. And if you, when that comic comes out or when it hits the shelf, you can't miss things, man. If they're in your comic book shop, you can't miss them. <laughs> they're oversized, bright colored, covered comics, man. And uh, Street Angel, you can pick those up in uh, in your shop, or you can ask them to order one, or like probably catch Jim at some shows. You got any, any more shows? You got New York? Are you good at that? I think this is. Mm, I may do one in Cleveland. I, I often do uh, Genghis Con around Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine organizes that, and it's a small press show, uh, so that's a fun show, but it just depends on my availability, sometimes around the holidays, yeah. sometimes family interfering mm. with my comics, Man. you know? <laughs> yeah, Sean just drags me around for comic stuff. I don't ever want to go. She that's a good, that's the best things. kind of family. <laughs> my family never drags me to comic <laughs> stuff. Well, thank you, Jim, and um, I look forward to seeing everything that you got coming up in the future and uh, where you where you uh, evolve to next. I know Sean and I had the idea that you may be going to um, uh, handmade pottery next since you kind <laughs> of seem to be going through the uh, the uh, high school uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pinch pot pottery next from Jim Ruggs. It's going to be a fun SPX. <laughs> a bunch of ashtrays that are kind of poorly shaped. <laughs> Pitch pop, <laughs> going through the uh, the arts. You laugh. High school now arts. you've planted that seed. <laughs> you've accepted uh, that, that idea. Well, thank you uh, for your art, and thank you for your work, and thank you for your time in this interview and sitting down with us. Thanks, Adam. Happy tenth anniversary. Hey, thank you. Hopefully, you know it'll be a good one. I mean, the year's almost over. Here's but... the ten more, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. <Jim. laughs>